Well, well, welcome back to Rebellion Dogs Radio, episode 31. Rebellious Addiction Recovery Radio, now with less dogma and more bite. Today's guest is film documentary producer Greg Horvath, who I've been writing about and talking about since uh, last fall. This episode we're going to call Looking Inside the Business of Recovery. The Business of Recovery was the title of the debut documentary produced by institutional insider Greg Horvath. I talked to Horvath in November 2016 at Toronto Film Art Festival Rendezvous with Madness. Rendezvous is an art addiction and mental health amalgam. Painters, filmmakers, and psychiatrists sit on panels together and discuss well-being and falling off the beam in panels that precede or follow indie film documentaries. Horvath is back at it with crowdsourcing for his second treatment business inventory-taking documentary. His new project, or follow-up documentary, has a working title of The Truth About Rehab. It aims to frame the addiction treatment business as a wild, wild west, where wild claims are made and wild fees are charged for health care. Greg's film is dedicated to exposing corruption and unethical or predatorial practices. The new trailer to The Truth About Rehab quotes 50,000 as the number of people who died of addiction in 2015, the year of his first documentary. Death is something Greg has come to gain some insight on since he started this project. Some of the people that Greg interviewed in the business of recovery who were going through the addiction treatment system then didn't live to the documentary's end, or at least they're not alive today. Listen to these uh, revelations from the first business of recovery. Tell me what kind of treatments you've been through. I've been through several inpatient, I've done outpatient. We found out that he had been using heroin. I'd like to stop you halfway and, and offer up whatever we could do to help. I've tried those things. They're not working for me. I can't even count the rehab places. I, I, I lose track at least five, maybe six. You expect your doctor to be doing what the science says is the best treatment available. That has not been a standard in addiction treatment. It fails for most people, for the vast majority of people. What are you getting for your money? That's a really good question. Nobody knows. If you're looking for figures in scientifically rigorous studies, you will not find those studies. We are not delivering any better outcome than we were 25 years ago. How long's your journey been? Eight years now. Which is the worst one? Heroin or alcohol. My parents, they thought that I was gonna die. And they would do absolutely anything to keep me alive. Why would you switch what you're doing if it's what works? If someone is saying that, it's a statement of faith, not a statement of science. If the treatment itself is not addressing the real psychological factors behind addiction, it's unreasonable to say that having more of it is going to help you more. Treatment's about money, big, big money. So we have poetry, anger management, yoga. 
Our referrals bought and paid for every single day. If you're not doing what's best for the patient, you're going to do what's best for your pocketbook. And the family is totally willing to do anything to take care of their kid because they're about to die and they know it. The system has to change. They have to be held accountable. You know what the alternative is, don't you? If, if Death. This one night stay cost me almost 12 grand. I cashed in all of their college funds. We just didn't have $25,000 cash. It's so easy to take advantage. They want to believe what these people tell us. If you follow the critics of addiction recovery, you might recognize the voices or some usual suspects that always have time for the cameras when it's time for more what's wrong with the addiction treatment paradigm commentary. Staten Peel, Lance Dotus, both call themselves addiction experts. And if you know these men, you know they have something to say about the treatment industry's love affair with 12-step facilitation. D.D. Stout, is becoming a regular in these sorts of things. We remember her from the Penn and Teller bullshit episode about 12 steps. Uh, that was episode four of Rebellion Dogs Radio. Stout always holds her ground. This documentary does its journalistic homework. Lakewood, California addictionologist Dr. Stuart Finkelstein offers some insight. William R. Miller, Emeritus Distinguished Professor at University of New Mexico, brings both academic and clinical cred to the discussion. Miller was one of the research group contributors to Project March, which was the basis of the 12-step facilitation therapy manual, A Guide for Professionals, written by Dr. Joe Nowinski, who some of you may recall from an earlier Rebellion Dogs episode, along with uh, two other co-authors. So the documentary is loaded with credible commentary. Horvath isn't out to get those who profit from the vulnerable. He hasn't set out to demonize institutionalized health care, but he is critical the business of recovery asks, how can we do better? Can we do better? Horvath's film proposes a better, regulated, more client-centric, more transparent healthcare system for addiction. Last November, his travels with this film led him to Toronto. I'll share our discussion with you later. I'll link you up if you're interested in finding out more about getting personally involved with his new film. I found the film provocative. It's not outdated, and I recommend it. Anyone who's listened to more than one of these shows or read more than one Rebellion Dogs blog, uh, well, you're the target audience, and I would safely say that you would uh, find the Business of Recovery film interesting. You know me, I was skeptical and aroused by some of the ideas raised in the documentary. And since watching The Business of Recovery, I've been doubling my own efforts at research in the behind-the-scenes of the 35 to $36 billion U.S. addiction treatment industry. I'll share some of what I've found. Uh, pundits, advocates, critics, lobbyists... They all have a spin on this. Why not? A lot's on the line. A lot of 
well-being and profit to be had. Here's some uh, background that we need for context. Ask Google or Siri or whoever you ask for facts these days, what does addiction treatment cost? A 30-day program could be $14,000, $27,000, or $80,000 in Malibu. Outpatient treatments could be in the $500 range. Detox can be $600 to $1,000 per day. Here's a mouthful, but it's important to bookmark it. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, it's an acronym where we don't pronounce all the letters, S-A-M-H-S-A. It was formed in 92 by Congress. SAMHSA describes itself as the agency within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services that leads public health efforts to advance the behavioral health of the nation. SAMHSA's mission is to reduce the impact of substance abuse and mental illness on American communities. Here's a mind-blowing stat from SAMHSA. In 2005, they count just under 286 million people 12 years of age or older who are either alcohol or drug dependent. By the way, the 35 billion we've uh, quoted that goes into treating alcoholics, that only managed to find help or services for 10% of that 286 million people who needed or were seeking treatment. SAMHSA itself is requesting from Congress a budget of $4.3 billion to carry on its work this year. The National Council of Alcoholism and Drug Dependency, NCADD, has some AA history. Uh, first in many regards, Marty Mann was AA's first lesbian, first LGBTQ success story, and an early advocate outside the AA rooms. It's interesting to wonder if we had formal traditions or finger-pointing tradition enforcers back then, if Marty M. could and would have done what she's done. Mann is credited for organizing the National Committee of Education on Alcoholism in 1944, pre-traditions, which became National Council of Alcoholism in 1950, pre-traditions. And then they became concerned with drugs and rebranded as NCAD, N-C-A-D-D, in 1990. In a mission statement, here's how NCADD describes itself. An affiliate network, it's a voluntary health organization de dedicated to fighting the nation's number one health problem, alcoholism, drug addiction, and the devastating consequences of alcohol and other drugs on individuals, families, and communities. Activities include professional and community training, referral services, support and advocacy, and public information. Of course, don't mistake NCADD with NIAAA or NIDA. There is the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, NIAAA, 
and the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA. For that matter, there's uh, the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, BRFSS, and please do not assume from my ability to offer a partial list of stakeholders that I have a coherent understanding of how they differentiate or cooperate. I certainly do not. Horvath's first movie makes the claim that treatment center cost for addiction in America is $35 billion, that it's risen 300% over 25 years. He also points out that treatment centers have tripled. They have now become 14,000 as the number of places that will take your money to treat your addicts. That frustrates uh, Greg Horvath because drug deaths have also tripled in the same period. Cancer deaths are down 22%. He isn't sad that there's less cancer deaths, but he feels like the decrease caused by applying the scientific method could also be enjoyed by addiction sufferers as well. The National Institute on Drug Abuse website reports the cost of health care of nearly double Horvath's already staggering $35 billion number. I mean, Greg or anyone else out there, you had me at $1 billion. <laughs> That's an unfathomable bunch of anything. NIDA cites $64 billion in health care costs. And so it looks at more than just the what the treatment center charges. It looks at the cost of society and communities. And you add all that in, and it's uh, 50, uh, I'm not, sorry, not 50, 521 billion. So alcohol alone, the health care costs are 27 billion, and the overall costs are 249 billion. Illicit drugs, we spend $11 billion on health care, and the overall cost, lost days of jobs, stealing, you know, criminal activity, $193 billion. Prescription opioids, uh, we spend $26 billion. The total cost is $79 billion. So the total health care cost, they peg at $64 billion dollars and overall cost to society $521 billion. And again, I don't think I really understand a single billion dollars, let alone 521 of them. So the cost of trying to stop addiction is staggering. The cost of doing nothing is still expensive too, isn't it, when you look at the other costs of addiction? The business of recovery isn't saying that spending money on treatment is wrong or wasteful, but that's not to say there isn't some waste. Uh, Assuring customers get what they're promised makes sense, doesn't it? A cautionary note before we go any further. If you entered recovery, your own recovery, uh, from the treatment industry from a recovery center, or if you work in the recovery business, either way, you are inclined and entitled to have strong feelings based on deep personal experience. I don't work in a treatment center. I didn't come through treatment to get clean and sober. So 
I will try not to be cavalier, and I'll try to stick with what it is we can gain by taking stock and inviting these questions. How can we do better? More than who is to blame. So I'm going to try to avoid pointing fingers. And now here's my conversation with Greg Horvath, producer of The Business of Recovery and the upcoming The Truth About Recovery. The setting is the lobby of the Art Gallery of Ontario Theatre. It's a packed house. Just watch Greg's documentary and waiting for the next one. You'll notice a lot of calamity <laughs> as Greg and I speak. Here we go. Hi, this is Greg Horvath. I'm the producer of The Business of Recovery, and you're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Greg, uh, almost everyone has some sort of personal connection to uh, addiction. You shake any family tree, one or two alcoholics or addicts fall out. Do you have a personal connection to uh, the addiction problem? Actually, I have a very personal con- connection to the to addiction, and that's my own. Yeah. Uh, we never got into it uh, during the Q&A after the film, but my own story is I've been in recovery for almost uh, 20, uh, January will be 27 years, and I went through you know, my own process uh, years ago in Canada. And, and then plus there's you know, family members and so on. So addiction was always near and dear to me, both yeah. because of my personal experiences and then uh, also those around me that were close. Right. And then you worked in the field as well. The very industry you're criticizing uh, was uh, you were biting the hand that fed you uh, to a certain extent. Technically, I think I chewed off the hand that fed me. <laughs> uh, but you're right. I, I worked in the industry. And you know you can only... I understand when people work in the industry. Mm-hmm. And in particular, people like myself who you know, not, were struggling with addiction. You get sober or clean and you turn your life around. You're very passionate. It's like that epiphany, right? You want to share yeah. it with people and you want to help. And I think that's great. However, if you believe your eyes and you watch what's happening over and over and over mm-hmm. again, you can only do that so long and say, you know, I'm doing a great job. I'm doing the best I can. And that's, and that's not true. At some point, you have to say, you know what, what we're doing, this system is broken and what we're doing is not working and we need to acknowledge that or it's not going to change. So that's where it came from, is being on the inside and you know we get into kickbacks and referral fees and lack of educational requirements and lack of science. You know, we look at, we look at all that stuff and that needs to change. People say, well, what's the solution? I didn't make the film to say, here's what I think works, you know, this doesn't work, here's what right. I think works. I made that it's the business of recovery. There's this business that's preventing the system to ever change so that we actually look for something that works because nobody knows that what we're doing isn't working yet because they're told that it is. Now, what would you say to someone who said, it's easy to point the finger and criticize, you know, where's the solution? Uh, to me, the solution, we, we chiseled it down to three points, education, regulation, and science. Mm-hmm. We need better educated professionals in charge of treatment. Mm-hmm. We need that treatment to be science-based, not quasi or anecdotal or evidence. Yeah, evidence-based isn't really a scientific term evidence, at all. I, I wish people understood. 
now there's no evidence-based treatment are the three most damaging words you can tell to a desperate family yeah. they sound so good and they mm -hmm. don't mean anything empirical data right where you've done a double blind and you know like a pharmaceutical company right. non-restricted the doctor doesn't know who's getting the real pill and the sugar and neither does the patient and then you let the science emerge what actually happened science-based treatments evidence-based is more like red tag special yeah it's like well i tell I, I used to tell my director i said well okay i drove to work a certain way yeah. every day for five years. Yeah. And then this one day I went a different way and I got a raise that day. So there's evidence to support that if you drive to work a different way, there's evidence to support that you'll get a raise. Let's, when I say that, it sounds ridiculous, yeah. but that in essence is what's happening. There's such a strong behavioral component mm -hmm. woven into addiction. Mm -hmm. Almost anything can look like it works for somebody at some point in time. That's not science. Well, yeah, you get into this argument of my anecdotal proof versus your anecdotal proof. Because uh, yeah. there's a lot of that, isn't there? Yeah, that would. The, the, Is there like a bad guy in your movie? Like, uh, who are we uh, trying to speak out against? Yeah. Well, the, and we actually didn't, we tried not to just, that's why we took on Betty Ford and Rick Schoonover. And if you remember in the film, Rick Schoonover yeah. was the one, he's convicted of so many felonies he doesn't yes. remember. Right, yeah. And, you know, he's running uh, Sober Living just like Betty Ford. Right. And the whole purpose to that was, you, you can dismiss one bad guy, right? There might be one bad reporter, yeah, but yeah. they're not all bad. Mm -hmm. But when we show you a system that's, whether it's, um, what's that called? Willfully corrupt and malicious, right, yeah. or just ignorantly corrupt and malicious. Right. It doesn't matter. It's getting the same outcome. Yeah. So it's 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 not so much the people as why are we the people allowing that system to continue? Right. It just it needs to. If you're going to call addiction a disease, then make it look like medical. Right now, addiction treatment gets right up to the medical side. Sounds medical, looks medical, and then it stops, and it's like tonic water and carnival atmosphere. So is it a behavioral health issue? How do you define addiction? You know, and the disease, not a disease. You know, I said that in the Q and A. It's like uh, you just so there's I so many. I don't have a horse in that race. Yeah, like there's, there's like so many people are. I, and because when I'm with people, I think it's the disease, and these yeah. doctors will go to great length to marginalize me and my opinion on it. You well, know. you made a great point that um, it, it's a dangerous thing to say to the addict because it doesn't create this sense of uh, okay, that's my problem. Now, what are we going to do about it? It creates this resignation. Oh well, I'm an addict. That, that's, that's what happens. That's the most. That's a very powerful point, and you're you're dead bang on. Because the debates I have, mm -hmm. I can say I can throw up an expert that says it isn't. I can throw up an expert, and I'm talking expert scientists yeah, yeah, is for isn't. Sure. Yeah, I said the problem is. I understand what you're trying to, what they're trying to do when they say it's a disease. It's to reduce the stigma. I get that. However. It's not landing that way. It lands just like you yeah. said. It's like in those moments just before relapse, while I'm an addict, that's what I do. Yeah. I have no control over it. Yeah. And if you can get somebody to understand the biggest factor in their in, in having a positive outcome when they're dealing with their own addiction is their, their participation, like understanding their role. Right. It is important. Now, we have medically assisted therapies that will help reduce cravings or, or, or mm. step you down off the you know, opiates. We have great psychologists, uh, support groups, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, those are great. But it's still, you know, you participate in this. 
and it's hard, but you can do it. You know, you get all this other help, and then that it's like uh, there's a, a a drug or a treatment for nic nicotine, right? And it says, right. and the commercial says, when this treatment, this medical treatment, is combined with a strong desire to quit smoking, you'll have better odds at quitting. <laughs> it's not it's not 100%, but it goes up. Yeah. So if you can bring that, the reason most heroin addicts or, or meth users don't quit, unresolved trauma and cravings. Yeah. When you tell them to stop, the boom, that mind goes, what are you, are you kidding me? Because that tap, 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 they yeah. the craving. And there's something that's driving that, right? Whether it's childhood sexual abuse, whether it's, you know, we had one person we interviewed, when he was nine years old, he watched his mother jump out of a 75, the 75th floor apartment building in Manhattan. Yeah. He watched that as a child. Yeah. And there's some deep-rooted trauma there. Yeah. And he's medicating now with opiates. And if you don't address those two issues, he's not going to quit because he, I can't quit. The, the cravings are so strong. It's a Gabor Mate uh, perspective. Uh, yes. Don't ask why the addiction, why the pain. Exactly. That's, and that's somebody else, his name comes up a lot in yeah. our travels. And you're dead bang on. If we don't get to the root of it, it ain't going to happen. Now, this has been out long enough that you must be at the, oh, I wish we had done this or had this person on or covered this point or uh, anticipated this, you know, rebuttal or concern or... But you are right, because I'm OCD. <laughs> it's like I can pick that thing apart all day long. But I've gotten really comfortable with the, the film that you saw. Mm -hmm. I can live with it. Mm -hmm. What we have done is we're already storyboarding the business of recovery too. And we're getting, there's some really dirty things that go on in relationship to patient brokering and other things that are happening that we want to get into. Mm -hmm. We keep relating it to the business. Right. Because it's follow the money. You want, yeah. you want, you want to get better treatment. Like we said, the three things, education, regulation, science. Yeah. Um, the last thing we never touched on was regulation. I talked about educational requirements and science, but uh, we need regulations. Yeah. I mean, in Canada, there was, a, there was a, a headline in the National Post that said the wild, wild west. And the reason I took it out was because that's one of the lines we used in our film was it's like the wild, wild west. They had two guys that were just, you know, no, they were saying they were doctors and they weren't, or they were just, they were just saying anything. They can do anything. Sober living's not regulated. When you it's like uh, all natural is a marketing word you can put on a cereal box. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it isn't it doesn't a regulation. Evidence-based. Oh, the one yeah. they have they have guarantees. So I looked at the Canadian site and yeah. it said we guarantee your treatment. Because they did. It's it's one thing it's one thing to say yeah. that I guarantee this light bulb for so long, and if it doesn't work, we'll give you a new one. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. Guaranteeing addiction treatment implies that the treatment is so good that we get, we stand behind it. And yeah. this, you know what the disclaimer is? They all have a disclaimer. It's if they have room for you, they'll take you in. Yeah, yeah. And they don't, guess what Guess what happens all the time? They don't have yeah. room. Yeah, that's and the right. other implication is, okay, so you guaranteed it. So when they relapse and overdose and die, what does that guarantee mean? Well, uh, they're uh, running us out of town because they're starting the next uh, movie, but it sounds oh, wow. like we'll have an opportunity for, if there's going to be a uh, business of recovery too, uh, there's going to be a business of recovery to interview. How, how about that? I, I would make time for you. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. okay. Thank Absolutely. you so much for taking the time to, to watch the film and then talk to me after. I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. You bet. We'll uh, see you again soon. So now you know some insider information on Greg Horvath. He's from the recovery community. While he lives in the U.S., he's from Canada. And he might have a bias that health care is a right, not a commodity. He also, as well as being critical, argues that there's three ways 
that the business side, more than the treatment side, of rehabs and therapy can be improved. One, use the scientifically driven methods, empirical, not evidence-based, as we talked about evidence-based as just a marketing term. Better education and licensing is number two, and number three would be regulations to protect patients and hold treatment facilities accountable. Not all addiction recovery insiders are um, wringing their hands and scooping up the profits dubiously conspiring against vulnerable patients. Some within the industry are pressing for advancement in client and patient care. I specifically remember a presentation in last fall's NADAC, the Association for Addiction Professionals, annual gathering uh, in Minneapolis. It was a Hazelden Betty Ford presentation, as a matter of fact, and it offered some a caution from the work of psychology researcher Irving Janus, who's from both Yale and Berkeley. From this book, Groupthink, Psychological Studies of Policy Decisions and Fiascos, we're reminded, all of us, to combat group thinking's three symptoms. One, the illusion of invulnerability. The group believes failure is impossible. Two, collective rationalization. Group members invent reasons to ignore warnings and refuse to objectively evaluate their stance on issues. And three, inherent morality, self-proclaimed superiority. As an aside, I posted these three groupthink syndromes on an AA-ish Facebook group and asked if AA and other 12-step fellowships suffered from these symptoms. A lively, somewhere between engaged and polarizing discussion ensued. I learned at NADAC and other conferences that not all of the recovery industry, not all of the people involved are engaged in willful malpractice. I know that there are many within the industry striving for more ethical, cost-sensitive, effective care for substance use disorder sufferers, and to Horvath's comparison with cancer, the 22 percent increase in survival rates, most people who we treat for cancer do still die of cancer. I think the cancer can be beaten fundraising slogan has been around since the 60s, and cancer's still winning. We're still losing. I don't think there is a simple solution to complex problems, and addiction is complex. Uh, we will continue to see people die prematurely. Mita Johnson, Remember Dr. Johnson from our show from NADAC, 2016 Annual Conference? She is dedicated to uh, member education and ethical conduct for treatment professionals. In the current issue of their trade magazine, Advances in Addiction and Recovery, Dr. Johnson writes about when someone within the industry identifies an ethical dilemma or legal issue, how they should gather information and review the NADAC Code of Ethics, finding the principle or principles in the code that apply, and consider fair options 
that would pass public scrutiny, evaluate the pros and cons and consequences, and implement, analyze, and plan to reassess in the future and where to reach out for help and support. I think we agree that the room for improvement is spacious, and while it's prudent to make room for criticism about the current status quo, progress is being made as well. Here's a story by BuzzFeed reporter Kat Ferguson, who writes about people, mostly non-professionals, that get finder's fees for posing as good Samaritans and encouraging people into treatment centers or sober living houses. This is a story from Delray Beach, Florida, called Addicts for Sale. The people targeting them are variously called marketers, body brokers, and even junkie hunters. They know addicts better than anyone, and many used to be addicts themselves. They spot kids dragging suitcases along the road and ask them if they need a place to go. Their phone numbers circulate in southern Florida among the untold addicts looking for clean time or those looking for a flop house that will let them get away with using drugs. Marketers act like headhunters, picking up addicts when they're down, bringing them to rehab centers and halfway houses for a fee. There's a lot of cynicism around because these headhunters that hang out at Starbucks and coffee houses, says Harold Jonas, an addiction counselor who has run recovery-oriented businesses in South Florida for 25 years and was one of the first sober homeowners in Delray Beach. They pay people to use because they get a 500 per head fee to get them in detox. Because the best way to milk the insurance is to cycle addicts through detox, rehab, and outpatient programs, there's plenty of incentives to keep them relapsing. Uh, that is pretty <laughs> reasonable to feel cynical about. Five recovering addicts told BuzzFeed News that some marketers uh, give their recruits money for drugs so that they test positive on urine tests when checking into treatment. He told me, you gotta be dirty to get into detox, one addict told BuzzFeed's News, describing a marketer who gave him cash for drugs. If peer-to-peer headhunting is maybe blue-collar crime, in the spring 2017 In Recovery magazine, California attorney Mick Meager wrote an article looking at white-collar or white-coat crime further up the professional hierarchy. Some of these shenanigans going on are outlined in an article called Searching and Fearless. Can the addiction treatment industry withstand a review of its business practices? He looks at some of the crackdowns and abusive uh, deceptive and uh, incompetent treatment practitioners. Here's what he writes. Recent FBI raids were conducted to examine urinalysis billing practices and other forms of insurance fraud. There were investigations of licensed centers paying for referrals. A number of centers seemed to avoid licensing by operating sober living homes and then referring clients to their 
own outpatient programs. Electronic insurance billing has unleashed the prospect of a federal wire fraud prosecution. Overcharging and excessive use of urinalysis is one nefarious practice that overcharges both clients and insurers. The article cites one insurer that's claiming they were defrauded over $50 million. Meager cites another New Jersey case whereby the defendant was accused of performing urine tests 6 to 12 times more frequently than medically necessary. An example is given of an outpatient program that billed insurance about $1,500 per drug test and tested each resident in sober living homes four times a week. The organization operated its own testing lab and medical billing company. They went so far as to advertise free rent, gym membership, and transportation to would-be residents. The article goes on to look at the questionable practices of referral payments as mentioned in BuzzFeed to these junkie hunters, aggressive tactics that block clients from leaving if they voice disapproval, and offering services beyond the scope of licenses or expertise. An example of this would be non-medical staff doing assessments using a questionnaire. Now, if this is done to save costs, well, who profits from the cost-saving benefit? What are the risks of non-professionals evaluating clients? Also, the spring 2017 in Recovery Magazine, Missing the Mark, Can We Improve Addiction Treatment? by Dr. Lilium Rodriguez. She notes, according to the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, that's the NIAAA, 90% of alcoholics will experience one or more relapse during their first four years of recovery. Most addiction treatment centers reveal only a 5% success rate. Although she doesn't say either what success is defined as, nor where she derives these stats, uh, I've heard them before. There is a major gap between current addiction treatment practices and the scientifically proven evidence-based treatments that ensure long-term sobriety. She goes on to say, sadly, the individuals who run many treatment facilities lack sufficient medical training or the necessary expertise and experience to treat chronic disease. Dr. Rodriguez's PhD inspires credibility, along with her 10 years' experience in study and treatment of addiction, co-occurring disorders, and trauma. She's on the same page as Greg Horvath about the need for more scientifically proven methods being administered by more highly qualified practitioners. Now, these more highly qualified practitioners that doesn't sound like a way to lower the $35 billion price tag of treatment today. Is Dr. Rodriguez protecting her turf, or would less qualified practitioners be causing the spike in treatment failures and addict deaths? What exactly are we going to do 
with all of these college-certified addiction workers? Is she saying there's no work for any of them? How much better or more necessary is $300 an hour care versus $30 an hour care? What are the recovery outcomes of $300 professionals versus $30 an hour professionals? Uh, is it 10 times better if you hire a $300 an hour caregiver? While we're at it, as a baseline, how much more successful are either of these against the $5 a week 12-step meeting or another mutual aid recovery? I mean, if one mode of treatment costs $40,000 a year and gets the same result as another treatment that costs $200 a year, uh, what does that say? A favorite argument of high-cost treatment is that 12-step isn't treatment, it's support. I'm not going to argue that point, but while we're comparing, how is petting horses better than talking with other addicts or talking to a trained professional? Now, The Guardian, along with several news outlets, report on equine therapy. In an article called Horses That Heal, we hear from Sarah, a California youth who went from suburbia safety to drug-infused homelessness to treatment, where she describes the breakthrough she had with her horse. I saw chips like me as a child. I was crying hysterically, a real deep cry. I felt a sense of protection and sadness. The horse allowed me to feel those feelings. The horse comforted me when I was emotionally vulnerable. Equine therapy, in some cases, dog therapy in low budget or more urban centers, is one of these things we call evidence-based care that some treatment centers brag about as being one of their competitive advantages. Back to the In Recovery Magazine Spring 2007 issue, Carrie Davidson is an intervention specialist whose Buyer Beware article shines a light on the following. These treatment specialists ask for your insurance information and self-pay capacity. You may be ranked solely by your wealth or your insurance. The treatment provider that calls you is likely from a company that paid anywhere from 49 bucks to $10,000 for the lead. Davidson goes on to encourage patients or clients to boldly ask, Are you employed, contracted, or financially incentivized by someone in a specific treatment center? The article goes on to say, Professionals worth hiring will use a clinical rationale to recommend a treatment provider. An ethical professional will not be defensive and will not mind telling you if they are being compensated for a referral. A lack of transparency about the financial flow is often indicative of deeper ethical problems. So The Guardian, In Recovery Magazine, TheBusinessOfRecovery.com The information is out there. I encourage you to get it. Buy or rent Greg's documentary. If you're feeling the pinch financially, go for free. 
predating uh, Greg's film, Vice did a mini-documentary, just 20 minutes long. It's called From Rehab to Body Bag, Dying in Treatment. We'll give you a link to the whole thing, which is, uh, you know, takes less than half an hour to watch. You can see it on YouTube, but here are just some highlights to what your whistle. We are falling behind. If you look at any other field of medicine, they are far advanced than addiction medicine. In the beginning, there was alcohol, and then there were alcoholics. From then on, we've been trying to cure addiction with all kinds of crazy methods, from solitary confinement and electroshock therapy to sterilization and lobotomy. It wasn't until the 30s that we found something that sort of, kind of worked, and that was Alcoholics Anonymous, created by a former atheist and drunk named Bill W. In the 50s, a couple of doctors adopted AA's religious-inspired 12 steps and mixed it with inpatient therapy, and the first modern-day rehab program was born. Since then, inpatient treatment has turned into a $35 billion industry, charging tens of thousands of dollars per person. This treatment model has become seen as the gold standard thanks to its glamorization and popular culture by shows like Intervention and Celebrity Rehab. I think that rehab has become accepted as the best and most wonderful thing you can do for somebody. Go to rehab, especially expensive rehabs, because that should be the best because right. it's so expensive. And of course, it isn't, it isn't so. Are poor people just straight up fucked? No, you might be better off. I think rich people are straight up fucked. Are you going to do this mentally when you're out in the real world? Probably not. <laughs> We are for-profit organization, okay? This is, a, this is not a non-profit organization, right. so I have to be honest with you. So, so when, when uh, you, are, you are in a business for profit, sales is involved. So you, you sometimes you sell, you sell people on the treatment? Of course you have to sell your treatment because there is so much competition, right? I'm just a little bit upset for all the people out there that might have problems with set for the upper middle class and middle class people who maybe bankrupt themselves trying to save a loved one and spend a ton of money on, on these fancy places out here only to have them relapse again because there are no other fucking options. I'm sad for the poor people who can't get access to this and have to just do 12 step or die. I appreciate what these people are doing because they're trying to help, but it seems like if you acquire an addiction in America today, most likely you are fucked. Because if you are addicted to something like meth, your likelihood of surviving, playing with fucking horses, and bocce ball, this shit's crazy. We're about to keep keep looking into this, but I, I don't know. I don't know what to think, I'm upset. As a layperson, something I would like to see in the critique of health services is context. Are referral fees really akin to advertising costs for competitive businesses? Or is putting a bounty on addicts or other warm bodies unethical? One of the criticisms of the business of recovery is the income for president and CEO of Hazelden Betty Ford. Mr. Mishik is his name. Hazelden Betty Ford is a nonprofit center. I can't exactly what the the dollar figure was for Mishik's earnings, but it was it was over four hundred thousand dollars. So, what I want to know is is that a lot? Is it modest? Is it fair? The impression was that it was a lot of income, 
and some of the parents who are cashing in life insurance for their kids' third, fourth, or fifth thousand dollar a day stay in treatment ought to know about that. What parent wouldn't do anything uh, they could or had to uh, when their child was suffering from addiction and might die? Especially if they're told that this money is going to save their life. At, say, $450,000 a year, that's 15 times more than frontline workers make who may have as much to do with your sick addict's success as Mark Mishik, CEOing, has to do with it. So if your issue is with capitalism, you might think CEOs ought never make more than 10 times their entry-level frontline workers. That's a great chat for another day. I probably wouldn't disagree, I don't know, but here's a great case for where's the context. What do other hospital or healthcare industry CEOs earn compared to Mishik? In the research I can find online, they don't match CEOs' pay with how many people who leave their healthcare facilities never have a reoccurrence or never relapse. They pay CEOs based on a percentage of the operating budget. If the facility is earning more, or at least more money is flowing through the organization, then it's more successful, regardless of whether they are making baby food in that building that the CEO works in, or if they're doing accounting, or if they're treating addiction. Hazelton Betty Ford's total revenue is over $164 million. As it turns out, uh, the latest numbers show that the loose change over $164 million is Mishik's Hazelden Betty Ford paycheck, about 426000 Here's something you or anyone can find about healthcare hospital operations and the relationship between operating budgets and CEO compensation. If there's an operating budget of a million to two and a half million, the average CEO in that range earns $103,700. Operating budgets of five million to 10 million, the average CEO in that group makes 153. Uh, operating budgets of 25 to 50 million, CEOs make an average of 226,000. And if it's over $50 million, the operating budget, those CEOs uh, make $317,000 on average. So Hazelden Betty Ford, 14 sites nationwide, had a 2015 operating budget of $74.2 million. So it's well above $50 million. And those people in that group, in Mishik's group, uh, earn on average 317 and he makes about 450 Is he worth it? Financials demonstrate that the total revenue from 2010 to 2014 went up every year from $130 million in revenue to now $164.4 million which is in keeping with what the business of recovery quotes being an increase in treatment center revenues. I hope the new film will offer more context instead of pointing out 
what one well-known CEO at one well-known treatment facility is making and say, this white male one percenter makes this much, aren't you outraged? And instead of reporting that there are referral fees being paid that are this much, I would like to see, as a discerning documentary viewer, more context with comparison to similar business practices and similar businesses. Maybe some context with how addiction and treatment is being managed in other countries and other cultures, that would be interesting too. These aren't consumer demands, it's just a wish list. From someone who reviews a lot of movies and documentaries, in the too short time that I got to know Ernie Kurtz, he mentored me in content creation in a very impactful way. He used the term that one doesn't expect to hear from their academic idol. It was about mass market self-help and the publishing houses that produce this chicken soup for chumps schlock. That wasn't what Ernie called it. (laughs) That's my term. But what Dr. Ernie Kurtz called it was self-help porn or recovery porn. The porn metaphor for the self-help industry was, as I understood what he was saying, playing to the lowest common denominator or the basest need of consumers. There is a want, a need, for a better way. Villains, victims, these are constructs that make room for a hero. They inspire righteous indignation and magical thinking. And they set the audience up for this path for a better way. A secret, uh, if you will. This uh, manipulates or feeds on our own desperation in the same way porn preys on both the object and the subject in transactional capitalized human intimacy. Porn actually sells us on more and better intimacy, but what it delivers is isolation, and they get away with it. A lot of these empty calories from self-help publishing, they make a promise that is never delivered. Documentaries can fall prey also to these easy perpetrator and persecuted we-need-a-hero archetypes. I say this as someone who believes in what I've heard from Greg Horvath. If he was in it for the money, he wouldn't be making a documentary. Or if he was, it would be a well-funded documentary that sung the praises of its subjects. But I see Greg Horvath as a journalist, and he's following the money that wherever the story leads us. Greg is an insider who has seen the good and the bad and what helps, and also he's seen willful blindness to unreported abuses and malpractice. But just back to Ernie Kurtz, he said a lot of things, including... History and imperfection are my specialties, not necessarily in that order. William White worked with Ernie on many occasions, and when Bill White had the bittersweet job of writing about Ernie's life after he died, he recalls that Ernie taught all of us about the importance of context 
along with other storytelling skills. And I'll finish up with this. When I began writing a book in the early 1990s on the history of addiction treatment and recovery in America, several people directed me to Ernie Kurtz as the authoritative source. I had no way of knowing that what I expected to be a brief consultation on the history of AA would evolve into a prolonged mentorship, multiple professional collaborations, and an enduring friendship. Through these years, Ernie Kurtz communicated a number of crucial lessons to me about researching and writing history. He repeatedly challenged, one, tell the story chronologically, do not confuse your reader. Two, tell the story in context, let your reader know what else is going on around the events you are profiling. Three, Present the historical evidence, sources, all the evidence. Four, separate statements of fact from conjecture and opinions. Five, tell the story from multiple perspectives. Six, this ain't easy. <laughs> Six, localize and personalize the story. And seven, stay connected to your readers. Keep them wanting to turn the page to find out what happens next. As an example of context, uh, Ernie Kurtz, Not God, A History of Alcoholics Anonymous, looks at the AA construct as one that could only have come from the postmodernism of mid-20th century USA. Pluralism, epistemological relativism, and a disdain for moral universalism are, are found everywhere from except when to do so would injure them or others in step eight, or the benign anarchy of the twelve traditions. Anyway, I could write a whole book about it, but it's already been done. The point is that it's folly to analyze the hell out of something without context. So, addicts, alcoholics who have lent me your ears, may I invite you to feast your eyes on www.thebusinessofrecovery.com and look into Greg's 2015 film, More, and contemplate getting involved in his crowdsourcing for his next film. Maybe you have ideas about stones that should be unturned in the next uh, uh, movie. I'm sure he would be as gracious with you in your time as he was with me. Also, as always, join the conversation here. Let us know uh, via Twitter or Facebook or uh, make a blog comment here or news at rebelliondogspublishing.com. From one rebellion dog to another, it will be nice to hear what you have to say. At the time of recording, I'm getting ready for a number of fall 2017 experiences. Sedona Mago Retreat Center has invited us, anyone who wants to come, as part of their recovery series to, uh, uh, for the weekend of October 27th to 29th. I'll be facilitating a weekend retreat that looks at the 12 steps and 12 traditions from a secular point of view. I'm hoping for something other than an echo chamber of non-theists, 
rallying. <laughs> it's open to all, regardless of what one believes or doesn't believe, regardless of our worldview. It's hard to avoid the fact that more of today's newcomers are looking for sobriety with a humanist or free thinker slant. We're going to spend the weekend talking about steps and traditions, the principles, not the literal wording, and how they might apply to today's newcomer. So if you're a believer, bring an atheist friend. If you're a non-believer, uh, bring along one of our more religious members. There will be no bait-and-switch conversion ceremony. Anyway, I bring this up because if you're thinking you might want to come, let me know what you'd like to see on the program. I am susceptible to influence as we speak. In September, there is SOAR, Secular Ontario AA Roundup, on Saturday the 16th of September. It goes from 9.30 in the morning till 10 o'clock or so at night. If you don't already know about it, we'll put a link on this blog. November, I'm off to Calgary for Issues of Substance, a conference put on by the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction. It's November 13th to 15th. So, if you're in the biz, maybe see you there. That would be awesome. Check out our calendar. Other dates might appear. There's a possibility of a Vancouver stop in September. Uh, last year it was all USA, and this year I'm uh, grooving on my Canadian roots a little bit. Not that I can't wait to get back to Sedona. That's one of the world's best places for mind and body rejuvenation. So over and out, friends and family, we're going out with a song. Here's a song we can all relate to. It's by Ashley Ball. Uh, she comes from the indie scene in Vancouver, Canada. This is a song called Crazy. Hope you enjoy it. Maybe I stayed a little late the other night. Maybe I should have come to be there by your side. I hurried home a little stone despite the rain. I should have known that's how it goes. There's no escape. Maybe I was crazy cause of you. Crazy cause of you. All that stupid you put me through. You put me through 